transgressions. But what that really means is that God added the law to restrain the people. They would have gone into sin, they would have done all sorts of things if God had not restrained them. They would have been like the Canaanites, those other surrounding nations, and God destroyed them because of their wickedness. And God didn't want that to happen to Israel, so he restrained them by giving them the law. It worked by fear of punishments. There were terrible punishments in the law. If you committed adultery, you were executed. If you disobeyed your parents, you were executed. You young people, you better be glad you're not under the law. If you, if you walked more than a kilometre on the Sabbath, on a Saturday, you'd be executed. Uh, there, were, there, were, there was the death penalty for all sorts of things. It was terribly fearsome, but it restrained Israel. It kept Israel moral out of, out of fear of punishment until Jesus came. Notice, uh, notice that word until. Until the seed should come, until Jesus should come, it says in uh, Galatians 3.19. So it was temporary. And when people began to be saved who were not Jews, when Gentiles began to be saved, they didn't need the Mosaic law. They needed the Holy Spirit. And uh, the day of Pentecost, I wonder whether you ever realize this, the day of Pentecost was the anniversary of the giving of the law. Did you know that? 40 days or 50 days after the give after the redemption of Israel by the blood of the Lamb. Fifty days after Passover, there was the giving of the law. Jesus died on Passover Friday. And so 50 days after Passover Friday, there was Pentecost. It was the same 50 days. It was the anniversary of the giving of the law. But what came down 50 days after Jesus, our Passover lamb, what came down was not the law or not some new law. What came down was the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit replaced the law. The Holy Spirit came down at the point where you'd expect a law to come down. It was the anniversary of the giving of the law. But the law, no law came down. The Holy Spirit came down. And the Bible says that we're not under, under the Mosaic system. We're not being ruled by fear of punishment in the way that ancient Israel was. We walk in the Spirit and we're given the Holy Spirit. But in Galatia, people came along and said, well, if you really want to be godly, you better go back to the Mosaic law. And they thought, well, yeah, maybe they're right. And they began to listen to these uh, false teachers. And they were going back to the law. They were wanting to keep holy days. And the people were trying to persuade the men to get circumcised and so on. And Paul writes this letter, and he is angry. He is furious with them. He says, if you, you go back to that, you've really cast away the gospel. You've fallen from grace. You won't be experiencing the grace of God if you go back to that. And he argues that we're saved by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he's in the middle of arguing that out. And now he's got another argument. These five verses that I've read to you, they are another argument in which Paul is arguing they don't need the Mosaic system. And the argument is, how did you receive the Holy Spirit? You foolish Galatians, how can you go back to the Mosaic system? Is that how you got blessed? Is that how you got saved? All I did, says Paul, all I did when I came to you is I just held up Jesus before you. I publicly placarded him, he says, in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 
one. Like one of these great big advertisements you see as you're driving along the road. You see this great thing on a placard on some big advertising board. And Paul says, I placarded, I held up high the Lord Jesus Christ. And you put your faith in him. How did you receive the Holy Spirit? How did you get blessed by God in the first place? Uh, All I did was publicly portray Jesus. Let me ask you this, he says, this one thing, one thing on itself is enough to prove that you're not under the Mosaic law. Let me ask you this one thing, he says. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? He said, how did you receive the Spirit? And this is the bit that I'm interested in. You see, these Galatians had received the Spirit. There had been a day in their life when as a church, my my theme is the church, there had been a day in their life when as churches, the churches of Galatia, they had received the Spirit. There had been days when God had poured out blessing upon them and some such worship and such power and such liberty and such praise came into into their midst. And Paul says, don't you remember? Don't you remember what happened? How did you receive the Spirit? Was I preaching the law? Was I saying to you, you better keep the Sabbath and don't eat bacon for breakfast and go to Jerusalem three times a year and you men better be circumcised? And as as I was preaching the law, the Holy Spirit was poured out. Is that what happened? No, no, I wasn't preaching the law. I wasn't telling all this legislation of the Old Testament. I was just talking about Jesus. And as I was just proclaiming, you heard me with faith in your heart. And as you were believing what was going on, what I was telling you about the Lord Jesus Christ, you received the Spirit. Don't, don't you remember that, says Paul to the Galatians? And sometimes there were miracles. Did, did you, you experience so many things? And he, he went on supplying the Spirit. I'm reading verse 5. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles, how did, how did these miracles take place? Did they take place as someone was being circumcised or as someone was uh, making very sure that he was keeping some holy day? How, how did these, these miracles take place among you? Wasn't it just when you were praying and rejoicing and living in the Lord Jesus Christ and trusting the Holy Spirit and sometimes miracles would take place? But how did it happen? Did it happen by the keeping of the Mosaic law? No, it happened just by your faith and your trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, plus nothing. There is nothing you need in your life, really, except Jesus. Let Jesus be your law. You say, well, if I don't have some sort of law, I'll live an ungodly life. No, let Jesus be your law. He won't lead you into ways of sin. You can trust him. Let the Holy Spirit be your law. He won't lead you to commit adultery. You won't say, well, you know, God led me to steal this morning. You won't say, well, God led me to, I was so angry, God led me, the Holy Spirit led me to kill him. No, no, the Holy Spirit won't lead you to kill anybody. You'll keep the law anyway if you're walking in the Spirit. You won't commit adultery, you won't lie, you won't steal. You'll keep the law. I like to say, some of you know, know my slogans, I like to say, if you walk in the Spirit deliberately, you'll keep the law of God accidentally. You just do it anyway. If you're walking in the Spirit, you won't lie or steal or commit adultery. Walk under the Lord Jesus Christ. You fulfill the law, says the Bible. You fulfill the law by walking in the Spirit. 
and being open to the risen Lord Jesus Christ walk, walking in your life. You don't, you don't get led into sin. You don't have to worry that uh, you know, if I don't have a law, I'll be led into sin. No, no, Jesus won't lead you into sin. And the Lord Jesus Christ will lead you into certain things that are not in the law. He will lead you to pray for your enemies. That's not in the law. He will lead you to do good to those who despitefully use you. That's not in the law. He will lead you, lead you not only not to commit adultery, but to be pure in heart. The law never bothers about your heart very much. He'll lead you not only to a kind of external morality, he'll lead you to be pure in heart. Blessed are the pure in heart, says, says Jesus, for they shall see God. You'll see God, you'll have a, even in this life you'll see God. You'll have a feeling that God is with you. You'll know that God is working. You'll be conscious of his presence. You don't get that by, by just obeying some law. You get that by living on the Lord Jesus Christ, living on the Holy Spirit, and he'll lead you into purity of heart. Don't live in a mosaic way. Don't be a mosaic Christian, if I can invent a term. Don't be just be a Christian under the mosaic system. Be living on Jesus, living in the power of the Holy Spirit. But the particular thing that I'm interested in this morning is, is this point, that there is such a thing as power coming upon the church. He is talking to churches. This letter is written to the churches of Galatia, as it says in chapter 1 and verse 2. He, said, he says to the churches, you Galatians, all of you, all of the churches, how can you go back to living under the Mosaic law? How did you receive the Holy Spirit? And that's my, my great theme this morning. Churches are meant to experience the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, some of you <coughs> may know a little bit about the baptism with the Spirit. People will talk a lot about the baptism with the Spirit. There is such a thing as receiving the Holy Spirit in a way that you're conscious of. There's such a thing as receiving power. Jesus said, you shall receive power when the Spirit is come upon you. There's such a thing as receiving power. And we call that the baptism with the Spirit. You know, in the, in the days of the New Testament, when people were saved, they baptized people. We, we still do it. It's not a small thing. It's not just dropping a, little, a few splashes on the people on some little baby's head. You get hold of somebody, and you, you half drown him in a river. You plunge him in the river, and he comes up dripping with water all over him. He's rubbing his eyes. He can't see anything. He's baptized in water. Now you, you use some river. It's not some little trickle of splashing a baby in some back of some cathedral. No, no, you, you half drown someone in a river, and you bring, you, you bring him up again quick before he does drown. The baptism, but the Bible says that Jesus will baptize us in the Spirit. He'll plunge us. He will immerse us into the power of the Holy Spirit. You remember, you remember John the Baptist who went around baptizing people? He said, well, I baptize you with water. You know, when I baptize you, I just get hold of you and I dunk you in the river and I baptize you with water. But when he comes, he will baptize you with the spirits. There is such a thing as the baptism, the outpouring, the flood of the Holy Spirit upon your life. But the thing that I am wanting to talk about this morning is not so much that, which is something that we tend to think in a very individualistic, one-by-one one sort of way. What I want you to notice this morning is 
that the references to the baptism of the Spirit in the New Testament are not just about personal experiences, which we're meant to have. We're all meant to, to know the baptism of the Spirit. But it's not just that. The Spirit is poured out upon churches. On the day of Pentecost, there were 120 people there. And as the 120 people were there, suddenly they were just praying. They didn't know what was going to happen. They couldn't uh, switch something on. It wasn't anything that they were doing. They were just praying. And as they were praying, there came the sound of a mighty rushing wind. There came tongues of fire. But notice, if you remember the story, the tongues of fire divided and came down upon each one of them. 120 people were baptized with the Holy Spirit all at the same time. It wasn't just uh, little people being prayed for in somebody's office and talking in tongues. It was an entire congregation with the Spirit being poured out upon them. And they were transformed. The whole 120 were all transformed, all in one breath, all in one go. And they began praising and worshipping and singing and they dashed out into the streets. And you're not full of the Holy Spirit, you stay locked up in some room. And you're full of the Holy Spirit, you go out into the streets. You want to talk to everybody everywhere. You want everybody to know what's happened to you. They went out into the streets and they began praising and and the whole people of Jerusalem said, what's going on? What's happening? Uh, These these guys, they've they've just come out of the pub. You know, they're drunk. What's happening here? And Peter stands up and starts preaching. He'd never preached a sermon like this in his life. The outpouring of the Spirit creates, immediately creates preaching. He hadn't prepared it. He didn't sit in his study that morning and say, well, this is the day of Pentecost. I better prepare a good word for the church. No, no, he hadn't prepared what he was saying. He just spontaneously is given a word. And there's such power there. It pierces people's hearts. They cry out, men and brethren, what shall we do? What shall we do? The, the very populace of Jerusalem were crying out in alarm as they, were, as they were realizing they'd crucified the Son of God. And they cry out, what shall we do? And Peter tells them, repent, be baptized, and you'll, you'll get your sins forgiven, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. What's happened to us will happen to you. And 3,000 people are saved on one day. But the point I'm wanting to make is this was the outpouring of the Spirit upon a church. And every single person has this at the same time. And you may say, well, that was very special. That was just the day of Pentecost. You know, that sort of thing doesn't happen again. It just happened at once. It was the giving of the Spirit upon the church. My friend, go and read your book of Acts. It happened again a couple of days later. Have you never noticed, even in the book of Acts, that the day of Pentecost is sort of repeated only a few days later? A few days later, in Acts chapter 4, two two chapters on, they are in trouble, and the apostles get uh, arrested, and they get beaten up and threatened and told, don't don't you preach in the name of this Jesus anymore. And the church start praying. And they pray to God, and we read in Acts chapter 4 that they're praying and asking the Lord, Lord, please uh, look upon their threats, look upon these people persecuting us, and grant to your servants boldness. I'm reading Acts 4.29. Grant to your servants boldness, and stretch out your hand with, with signs and wonders, and, and please, please help us, they say. Notice they're not apologizing. 
Not saying, well, Lord, we know we're so sorry that we've preached your message. Please, we promise we won't do it again. They're not apologizing. They're saying, Lord, come, come and be our rescue. Come and be our strength. Come and be our boldness. And as they're praying, the Bible tells us the very building shakes. There's a kind of little earthquake, a tiny little earthquake there. And the very building shakes. And they are filled with the Holy Spirit. The same people who'd been filled with the Holy Spirit a couple of days previously are filled with the Holy Spirit again. And they're given boldness. And they go out and they start doing the very thing they've been told not to do. They've been told, don't you preach anymore in the name of this Jesus. We read, they take no notice of that. They go out and they are filled with the Holy Spirit. And they continue to speak the word of God with boldness. You see, these outpourings, these baptisms, these floodings of the Holy Spirit can happen again and again and again, even within the book of Acts. They happen more than once. And, and this often happens about on congregations and, and greater communities. The Holy Spirit is poured out. I got a book yesterday in, in uh, London. I went up to London and got a book and I was reading some sermons by the the great preacher of Westminster Chapel, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, and he, he quotes something in one of his sermons. He is referring to this very thing, and he quotes something from the, the journal of John Wesley. You know the great, famous John Wesley. He was an Anglican minister. He was saved about 1735. People say the date of his conversion is 1738. It's not. He was converted about 1725. But about 13 years later, 13 years after he had been an Anglican minister, a preacher of the gospel, he went into, he went into a certain church and someone was reading a book, a book by Luther, and he said, my heart was strangely warmed. I felt this was for me. And he was baptized with the Spirit. And that, that began to change his life. From that point on, he had power. Uh, but I, that's not the bit I'm reading. Some months later, six months later, and this is the point I want to read to you this morning, a kind of moving of the Spirit had started all over London. People had had these outpourings and baptisms and floodings of the Holy Spirit. And there was one night, it was on the 1st of January, 1739, when there was a little prayer meeting. And a number of the, the leaders of that movement, John Wesley, Charles Wesley, his brother, George Whitfield, the, the famous preacher, they were all meeting in a little room in Fetter Lane in Fleet Street. It's still there. You can go to Fleet Street and there's a place there called Fetter Lane. They were meeting in a little house in Fetter Lane and, this, and they began to pray and the meeting went on and on and on. They started praying all night. It was midnight, one o'clock, two o'clock, three o'clock. They were still praying. And then John Wesley, he writes this in his journal. He writes this in his diary. About three o'clock in the morning, as we were continuing instant in prayer, the power of God came mightily upon us. Inasmuch that we, we cried out for exceeding joy, and many fell to the ground. And as soon as we were recovered a little, he says, from the awe and amazement at the presence of his, of his majesty, we broke out with one voice and they began to sing, We praise thee, we praise thee, O God, we acknowledge thee to be the Lord's. There you are, you see, there's a few humble men, they're just ordinary people, that one Anglican preacher, but, but recently they've come into blessing and they're just praying and they're praying all night. And suddenly, suddenly, as, as they're beginning to pray, there comes this kind of outpouring, this baptism, the power, the power of God came mightily upon us, says George, George John Wesley writing in his diary. 
And they, be, and they, they, they sort of knock to the ground. Some of them fall over. Some of them are almost unconscious. This presence of God. You may say, well, does this sort of thing still happen? Oh, it does. I want to tell you about it. So I'm, I'm going to stop and give you a break in a moment. But uh, yes, these, this is what we're looking for. And everything I've said this week is a waste of time unless you know the presence of God. And we've been talking so much about churches and structures and the trouble, uh, the great, great danger of talking about the church is you, you tend to start talking about organisations and how you're organised and who you're relating to and what are your relating churches and what you, how, how you have the leaders and church government and bishops and elders and preachers and apostles. I want to tell you the whole thing is a waste of time unless they have the power of God. Far more important than structure and organization is the power of God. You see, you don't need organization until you've got power. You can't organize a church and then as a result of your organization you get power. No, it doesn't work that way. It's not organization that creates power. It is power that creates organization. You see, on that day of Pentecost, when suddenly 3,000 are saved all on one Sunday, you can be sure the next day they start organizing them. Well, it's not in the Bible, but, but you, you, can guess, you can guess what they did. Well, you better put them in groups, and we better make, you know, we're 100 can meet there, and uh, we have a baptism next Sunday. You start organizing. It is power that requires organization. When, when 3,000 people get saved, well, you've got to start organizing your meetings and finding buildings to meet and uh, doing this and uh, arranging leaders. Uh, you've got to start organizing things. But you don't need to organize until there's a power upon the people. There's so much life there. There's so much energy. There's so much going on that you better organize it and just keep it to be tidy, do things decently in order. But it's not the doing decently, doing things decently and, order, and in order that leads to the power. It's the other way around. It is the power that requires you not to be too crazy and just organize things a little bit and do things decently and in order. It is the power that requires the organization. It is not that the organization brings power. In fact, the organization, you over-organize, you don't bring power, you kill power. You start getting tied up in your little, in your little uh, organizations, your arrangements. You have your little, your little committee meetings and you do everything. You have your constitution and your legislation. That's what was happening in Galatia. They said, well, let's go back to the law. You know, I don't think we can just be holy just by living on the Holy Spirit. <coughs> we, we need the Mosaic system. We better get the men organized and we better start keeping these rules of Moses. We better go back to this, this highly organized 2,000 rules in the books, in the books of the law. They, they were going back to being under the organization of the Mosaic law. And Paul says, that will do you no good, you foolish Galatians. Who has bewitched you? And actually, you've lost your blessing. Where then is this blessing you once spoke of? Galatians 4.15. You once were blessed, and now you've lost it. What made you lose it? Well, you've gone from walking in the Spirit to walking under the Mosaic system. And you did, you did, that didn't bring blessing. That lost you blessing. Where is the blessedness you, you once spoke of? You see, organization doesn't uh, bring, bring power, but power requires a little bit of organization, and then you don't do it too much. You don't organize so much. You don't have some big system, and you appoint national leaders and bishops and dioceses and clergy and offices and, 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 and central, central bureaus and, and postal reports and letters. You organize and organize and organize, and finally the whole thing dies. You don't organize a thing to death. 
You keep the minimum. You keep, the, you keep what you need to have things flowing decently in order. But you leave room for the power of the Holy Spirit. I've got a few notes here, but as you will notice, I'm not taking much note of them. They're there. If I get stuck, I'll go back to my notes. I don't really need them. They're just a little, little prop if I need them. All I need is not the notes, but the spirits. The power of the spirits. Yeah, you need a little bit of notes and organization. You plan a bit. You think a little bit what you're going to do. You have a little structure. Think of your body. You've got a skeleton, at least. I hope you have. Otherwise, you're a, a blob of jelly. <laughs> You've got a skeleton. But you can't see the skeleton. It's just in there somewhere. It's giving you firmness. It's giving you backbone. It's holding you up. But the important thing is not the skeleton. The, the important thing is the life and the flesh and the energy that's upon the skeleton. And it's the same with, with the whole of life. You have to organize things a bit. You, have a, you need a skeleton. You need a backbone. You need a framework. You need rough, roughly a kind of guide of what you're going to do. But the important thing is not the skeleton, but the flesh and blood that's upon the skeleton. The life, the energy, the power. And if you only have a skeleton, if you're only skeleton, well, that means you died last week. We better bury you quick. You're just a skeleton. The skeleton is something which is dead. No, it's not the skeleton, it's not the framework, it's not the system, it's not the church government, it's not, it's not the leadership. And we were, were saying in, in the week that uh, in the New Testament, the leaders are hardly mentioned. There are leaders there, there are elders in the churches in Thessalonica and Corinth and Galatia. There, there are leaders there somewhere, but they're hardly mentioned. You can read the whole of Galatians and it hardly mentions the leaders. It does in chapter 6, right at the end. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, right at the end. Corinthians, right at the end. It's always at the last, at the last breath, he might say, well, you, you better obey your leaders. But in the bulk of these letters, they don't even mention the leaders. Why not? Because the important thing is not leadership and the officialdom and the routine and the law and the legislation. That's not the important thing. The important thing is the body of the people. And New Testament letters are not written to leaders, they're written to the churches. Galatians 1-2, to the churches of Galatia. It's not to the officials or the leadership, it's to the entire people. The entire people are to be alive in the presence of God. And leaders, they just help a little bit, they just uh, teach you a little bit and tell you they're one step ahead of you, we hope they are, we hope they are, and they are... They teach you and help you, but they're not a hierarchy. They're not the clergy and the laity. They're just the people of God who have got a few gifts and they're a little bit ahead of you. That's all they are, nothing more than that. And the important thing is that life should come upon the whole body. Well then, and in the book of Acts, you find these outpourings of the Spirit. There's another one in Acts chapter 10. You remember how on one occasion... The gospel went to the Gentiles. And uh, Peter was called to go and see a man called Cornelius. And they went, they arrived, and they got a kind of meeting together with these Gentile Christians. And God had sent them. God sent the apostle Peter to go and see Cornelius. And so Cornelius was saying, well, I had a vision, and saying that you were going to come. And Peter says, yeah, I had a vision too, telling me I should come and meet you. And they begin to talk and to chat. And so Peter starts talking and preaching and he says well I, I realize that God shows no partiality you people are Gentiles but uh, in every nation people who, who fear God are acceptable and uh, as, for the, as for the word that he sent to Israel well he, he came sending Jesus and uh, it all began with John the Baptist and beginning with John the Baptist uh, after the baptism 
that John proclaimed, God anointed Jesus and he went around preaching and doing good. He's talking about Jesus and just, uh, just chatting and telling him the story of the gospel. And, and he says, we are witnesses and they put Jesus to death by hanging him on the tree. But God raised him up and so on. He's preaching. But it says in Acts chapter 10 and verse 44, while Peter was saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who believed. The same thing that happened in Acts chapter 2. The same thing that happened in Acts chapter 10. The same thing that happened in London on the 1st of January 1739 to those early Methodists. The same thing happened. The Spirit fell on them as they were listening to Peter. Peter didn't know it was going to happen. He, wasn't, he didn't organize it. didn't say, you know, half past ten, the Spirit's going to fall, get ready. He, he, he wasn't saying, well, stand in a row, and as you, as you stand in a row here, the Spirit will come upon you, let me lay hands upon you. He wasn't doing anything like that. He didn't even know it was happening, and it, and it surprised everybody. They were not expecting Gentiles to receive this blessing. Everybody else so far had been Jewish. Now, now this is going to happen to Gentiles. That, that, that took them all by surprise. He's just preaching. He's preaching about Jesus. He's doing what Paul said that he had done in Galatia, placarding Jesus, holding up Jesus high. Jesus was sent by God. He's the one. He died upon a cross. He was risen. And we're witnesses. And God has exalted him to be the Savior. And as Peter is preaching, the Holy Spirit falls upon the entire community. And they begin to praise God. And they begin to worship the Lord and they start talking in tongues and uh, all sorts of things begin to happen. And they're amazed. And people say, oh, well, this must mean that God is going to save hundreds and thousands of Gentiles. Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people, putting them officially in the church, you might say, because they have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. They say what's happened to us upon the day of Pentecost has just happened to them. What happened in Acts chapter 4, it's just happened again. And surely this means that they can be Christians as much as we can. These are Jews and Gentiles are coming into the church. So what then is this baptism with the Spirit? Well, it's a kind of assurance of salvation. It's when you feel the presence of God. The Bible says his spirit witnesses with your spirit that you are a child of God. You have this kind of, I don't even know how to put it into words. I don't think anybody does. You have this kind of voice in your heart that says you are a child of God. You say to yourself, well, I know in my heart I believe in Jesus. I'm sure in my spirit that I'm a Christian. But then his spirit witnesses with your spirit that you are a child of God. You get a kind of assurance. You get a doubling of your conviction that you are a child of God. It is a gift of assurance. You receive power. You, that assurance gives you power. You have a kind of boldness. You have a, an, an assurance, a certainty that you're a child of God. You know it. Everybody else knows it. People will come to you. They'll say, what's happened to you? 
and you, you'll say to them, what do, you, what, do you, what do you mean, what's happened to me? They'll say, something's happened, you know, you're not the person you were. What, what's happened to you, they'll say. And you'll tell them, oh, you know, I was, I've, been, I've been blessed by God, and now I'm a child of God. Everybody will see it. It'll put a smile upon your face. It'll, it'll put liberty in the way you walk. It'll transform you. It is a receiving of power. It is a foretaste of heaven. It's a bit of heaven now. It is the first fruits Well, the Bible says the down payment or the foretaste. It's a little bit of heaven that you get now. The first fruits of heavenly glory, says the Bible. It affects your praying. You pray, Abba, Father. You feel that God is your Father more than you've ever thought of him in that way before. You have an assurance that God is your Father. Well, this is the outpouring of the Spirit. But I want to tell you, this is meant to be known by entire churches. Not just by ones and twos. This is, this is the power of the church. When the outpouring of the Spirit comes upon the church. And it becomes a place of liberty and praise and worship. And they feel they're in heaven. The power of God came down, said Wesley, on the 1st of January, 1735. We were knocked to the ground. We, we began to lift up our voices and praise. We acknowledge thee to be the Lord's. And that power came upon the church on that day. It happens in the New Testament. It's happened in church history. It's happened today. I could tell you stories of even, of even today, these outpourings and baptisms and floodings of the Holy Spirit. Let's take a break, and then we will come back and ask the question, how can we know as a church anything like this? We'll take that up in the next session. Let's have a break.